0: Thank you, Jeff and Praise Team. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 to 42 is where we're going to be this morning. There was a season uh, way back, it feels like many moons ago, when I worked for a fruit company that makes phones. Uh, I think you'll know probably which one I'm talking about, Um I was, th- th- during this time, I was working on the campus of Apple in Cupertino, California, and we were eating at the cafeteria there on the campus. It's called Cafe Max. And so we're standing in line, a friend of uh, all of us actually on the team, and we're, we're standing in line and we're, we have our trays and we're getting ready to pay. And one of my friends feels the person behind him bump into him and he lurches forward and he hits the person in front of him. It's kind of a, a, a three-car pile up, if you will. And so the, the person, my, my friend in line, turns around as if he's going to, you know, kind of tell this person, you, you know, you ran into me. He turns around to see a tall, slender man wearing a black turtleneck. Steve Jobs had run into him. And so he turns around expecting an apology. And once he sees it, it's Steve Jobs, turns right back around and, <laughs> and goes about his business, not expecting an apology anymore. And so we gather together and we sit outside uh, the <laughs> building there on the, on the grounds, a little uh, picnic area kind of thing we sit at one of the table and next to us not 10 feet away sits Steve Jobs it's a fairly common thing around there to see him it was anyway to see him wandering around from building to building not that unusual but he's sitting down 10 feet from us and so right there not even 10 feet from me is the modern day Thomas Edison And we're sitting at the table, and our conversations at the lunch table were normally very lighthearted. We would normally be joking and telling stories and laughing. Every one of us was dead silent the entire time. Every last one of us were eavesdropping on the conversation next to us as if we could somehow be a part of it. And when we did talk to one another, it was business talk. It was mature. It was... You know, how'd that project go this morning? It was straight business. It was very important stuff that we would talk about. Because when the boss, the boss is near you, he generates a, a level of respect that's just generally not given for your average everyday employee. All the other days and other employees were around us, it wasn't so, so serious. But now that S- Steve was right there, it was, it was very, very serious. We couldn't joke with each other or anything like that. Because when the boss is present, he generates this, this level of respect that, that isn't usually given to the other employees in the area. This morning in our text, Jesus is going to encourage his disciples as they go out in ministry. And the encouragement that He is giving them is one way of saying, I am with you wherever you go. Let's read our text this morning. Matthew chapter 10, verses 40-42. to Whoever receives you, receives Me. And whoever receives Me, receives him who sent Me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, give us insight into this text. Help us to wrap our minds around it. Help us to understand perhaps where we should be convicted in areas of our lives. Allow our hearts to be opened, allow our minds to be opened, that we may not only understand your word, but apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Back when we started the book of Matthew, I told you that Matthew, as a book, is divided into five sections, five main sections, and then you have an introduction before them and a conclusion afterwards. And so Matthew is divided into these five sections, and we're coming to the close of the second main section in the book of Matthew. You'll remember all the way back, probably to chapter one through about four and a half, we see that introduction, where we're told who this Jesus is. And Matthew gives us a couple of ways of understanding who Jesus is. He tells us uh, he's of David's line, that he is of Abraham's line. He is king, in other words. He is the rightful heir to the throne. He tells us, we're told in the introduction, that he's Emmanuel. He is God with us, quite literally. We're then told that he's really the new and better Israel, the new and better Moses, as he walks through all of the steps that Israel and really Moses walk through before him, coming out of Egypt, going through the waters into the wilderness for 40 days. Then he goes up on a mountain and begins teaching. We see that Jesus is modeled for us as the new and better Moses leading his people out of bondage. And you can see Matthew has a pattern. As you look through the Gospel, you can see this pattern really develop where, where Matthew will tell us some narrative about where Jesus is and where He was going and what He was doing. And then he'll conclude that narrative with a large block of Jesus' teaching. Most of that teaching is uninterrupted. He just continues to teach. And so we saw that in, four, in chapters 4 to 7, where is Jesus is beginning his ministry, and then 5 to 7 is a long block of him just teaching, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is introducing us to the kingdom of heaven. It's just an introduction to the kingdom of heaven. And then we saw in chapter 8 and 9 where we see this new section where Jesus is going about and he's healing people. We see nine episodes of miracles and two episodes of calling people to be his disciple in chapters 8 and 9. And now we're in that second long block of Jesus' teaching and we're coming to the end of it today. This is the last little bit of teaching for Jesus in chapter 10. Next time, we'll start a a brand new section. Now, if chapter 10 was sheet music, it would be written in a minor key. You know what I mean by that? Takes on a little bit more somber of a tone. Because in, in large part, all of chapter 10 has really been about persecution, about betrayal, even betrayal from one's own family members, about beatings about handing people over, courtroom trials, all kinds of torture are presented to us in chapter 10. But then Jesus closes out the section with with a word of hope. He gives us a little bit of encouragement. And this is consolation to the apostles as they're going out. It's consolation to us that not everyone is going to reject you. But in this paragraph, Jesus is not... Just instructing the one going on the mission. He's not just telling the one going on the mission, here's what it's going to be like. You can tell even by the tone of the text, he's instructing the ones who would receive these disciples. So he's giving instruction even to the hearers of the gospel. People that might be hearing for the first time or people that might be hearing for the hundredth time. There's a general encouragement to the apostles that not everyone is going to reject you, but this is largely an instruction to the one receiving the disciples. Why do we need to receive them? How do we need to receive them? Why is it important to receive them? It tells us about the reward that they're actually going to receive when they do receive them. Now, there's two main points that I want us to see just very quickly in this text. And I want to focus the majority of our time on application, what this actually means for us as individual Christians and what this means as a church body. The first point that I want us to see here is that to receive Christ is to receive his people. To receive Christ is to receive his people. Now there are two concepts that I want us to understand first before we can really put them together. The, the first concept, which is perhaps one of the more challenging concepts for us as Christians to wrap our mind around is the idea of being united to Christ. What does it mean to be united to Christ? To the first century Jewish Uh, Mind, the concept of being united to a head, united to the head, is a a picture of the family. The the picture of the family. A son is united to his father who is the head of the family. And that's first, there's a physical connection, right? There's a a DNA link between the son and the father. That's certainly true. But there's more to it than that. The Jews had a part of the legal system called, referred to as the one being sent or the one sent. And that meant that the one who is sent doing the business of another has the full authority of the one who sent them. So the, the one being sent doing the business of another, usually that was a son being sent on, on their father's behalf. That that son that's being sent had the full authority of the father who sent them. So in other words, you might say to see the son is to see the father. Remember, Jesus uses this language in John when he's talking about himself and he's saying, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. That's what he's talking about he's saying, I am coming with the full authority of the father. I am coming to do his will. So seeing me is seeing him. So in that way of thinking, the father is the head and the son is the body. The father is the head. He is the picture of authority and the son is the body. He is the picture of the one doing the work. And yet the body is so connected to the head that you you can't separate the two from each other. You can't separate the body from its head. You can't separate the authority from the one carrying out the authority. Now, I want you to consider the bigger biblical picture. So just zoom out for just a second and consider the picture that the Bible is painting. Humanity, mankind, had a head. It had one head and it was presented to us In Genesis 1 and 2, where God was creating this head over mankind, his name was Adam, and he put him having authority and head over all mankind. He's placed as the head. Now, similar to how the Son inherits things from the physical Father, so you are subjected to Adam's punishment because of Adam's sin. Now, we weren't there at the garden. I wasn't physically present at the garden, but when Adam sinned, I had the result of his punishment. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam, all die. In Adam. So by virtue of Adam's fall, all die. So you have all authority of... Uh, so." All authority in, uh, that's placed in Adam, you have in one category over here. All the uh, headship is given to Adam and all the, the, the body, which is us, as a result of Adam's fall, all fell. So you have all of, of, of humanity in one category all under the headship of Adam. Adam disobeys God in Genesis 3 and as a result, all receive death. And since we are in Adam, we have received the same penalty. This is why Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 where he tells him you need to be born again you must be born again he tells him you have to be in an entirely new family you need to be put under an entirely new headship you need to be born into an entirely new family and the only way that can happen is being born of the Holy Spirit the headship that you need to be placed under is no longer under Adam's headship, but now under Christ's headship. You need to be born under my authority, with me as head. And so, once a person has been born again, once they've been born of the Holy Spirit, they're placed under a whole new race, a race that follows after its head, Christ. And that race has a renewed mind. That race has a regenerated uh, spirit by the Holy Spirit. That race is being bent toward now, pleasing God instead of pleasing the flesh. Paul says, "Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a you remember it? new creation. He is under a new head, who is Christ. He's a whole new creature. And as the head goes, so goes the body. Christ is uh, righteous. The body is righteous. Christ is ruling and reigning. The body will be ruling and reigning with Him. In the same way that we inherited death from Adam. If we are in Christ, we inherit life from Christ. Now, why is this important? Because Jesus tells His apostles before He sends them out, no one can receive me if they don't receive you no one can receive me if they reject you in other words your union with me extends even as you go out on the road and encounter all different kinds of people of various kinds some as we've seen are going to reject them and are going to persecute them In which case, we said back then a few passages ago, a few paragraphs ago, that they're really rejecting and persecuting Jesus. If they hate me, they're gonna hate you because you're my body. We're tied together. We're linked in this thing. Remember what Jesus says to Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you killing me? Jesus takes it personally but so also when they receive you, they're receiving me. The second concept that, I, that is also really important to understanding what Jesus is saying here is the idea of receiving someone. What does it mean to actually receive someone? Now, if you go all the way back to verse 14, there in chapter 10, if you just look up there at verse 14, you'll see the context is not just receiving the person, not just welcoming the person, Look at what he says in verse 14. And if anyone will not receive you, or what? Listen to your words. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So in the context, it's both receiving them as a person, being hospitable toward them. But it's not just that, it's also receiving their message that their message is true. So receiving them as a person and receiving the testimony that they present is the biblical version of hospitality. And it's the kind of receiving that Jesus has in mind here. It's receiving both them as a person and them as their, their testimony. So in verse 14 now we see that it's applied to rejection. If they reject you and your testimony, then they're rejecting me. And here it's applied to acceptance. It's the same notion that's being communicated here. The, The textbook sense of the word here is to permit access to one's company or react favorably to them. To permit access to one's company or to react favorably toward them. So the general idea is both of those things put together. The general idea here is that this is hospitality toward them. Not only do you welcome them in your company, but you treat them well because of the message that they're carrying. The one they represent while carrying this message. Now this definition would include everything from the way you speak to them what you say about them, the way you serve them. This includes every place from inside the walls of this church all the way to the inside the walls of your own home and everywhere in between. Now, if you connect these two concepts, the first being that we're united to Christ, we, we are Him, and to receive us is to receive Him, And the second, being uh, hospitable to the person and the message. If you connect those two, what you get is that we are to respond to each other as if the person across from you is literally Jesus. We are to respond to each other as if the person across from you is literally Jesus and anything less is a rejection of Jesus himself. See, the concept of hospitality is the merging of these two principles here. The follower of Jesus is united to Jesus. And I want to treat that person as if he or she were Jesus himself. I want you to imagine for a moment that we as a church received a letter in the mail. And it was, it was coming from Jesus himself. He wrote a letter to Emmanuel Baptist Church And the letter said, dear pastor, I'm coming to your congregation this Sunday, and I would like you to select one person at random whom I will join at their house for lunch after the service. And your name is drawn. What would you do? How would you prepare? What sorts of foods would you cook? How would you think about this? When he comes in the building, how would you greet him? What would you say to him? But not just you, the one that's picked. What about everybody else that's not? How would you greet him when he comes in? I have a feeling you would be the guest of honor. Red carpet would be rolled out for him. He'd be treated with the utmost of respect. Now imagine Jesus' words in verse 40. Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives you, receives me. How they treat you is how they treat me. This is a great encouragement because it means not everyone is going to persecute them They've dealt with, with a long chapter of persecution. It's heavy. It's challenging. But there are some out there who are going to see Christ in the message. They're going to see Christ in the messenger. And they're going to they're know that to receive that person is to receive Jesus. So, not everyone is going to persecute them. Not everyone's going to hand them over because there's going to be plenty of people that want to receive Jesus. But it also has wide ranging implications for us. A lot of really hard things are being communicated there. How are we receiving those who are bearing the name of Jesus? Receiving them and showing them hospitality is receiving Jesus himself. Second thing I want us to see in this text, to receive Christ's people has eternal consequences. To receive Christ's people has eternal consequences. So these these verses are making explicit what Jesus is saying in verse 40. What Jesus is saying in verse 40 is sort of a foundation and built on that is verse 41 and 42 spelling out what he means. In case you didn't understand verse 40, let me just spell out what I mean here. What I want you to notice in these verses are the people that are mentioned in them. Look closely at 41 and 42. Look at the people that are mentioned there. He starts with a prophet Then he goes to the righteous person. Then he ends up at the disciple. And it seems like the reason that he does this is to dispel the notion in case there was any confusion that it's not just the prophet that deserves the respect. It's not just the one communicating the message that deserves the respect. He gets rid of that notion by saying the righteous person. Even the disciple, if you just give them even a cup of cold water, it doesn't go without notice, which is the least possible thing that you could do for them is to give them a cup of cold water. Even that little act of kindness is noticed. Of course, the disciple would literally include anyone that submits to Christ's kingship. Anyone. And what's the result of receiving the prophet? What's the result of receiving the righteous person? What's the result of receiving the disciple? It's right there in the text. What does he, what does he say? Reward, reward, reward. For receiving any of these that are called by my name, reward, reward. Reward. Some think that Jesus uses the term prophet there to communicate the apostles as they go out. The, the prophets are the apostles, righteous people, and then disciples are different uh, groups of people that are called by the name of Christ. I don't think that that's the case. Now, that's not a hill I want to die on, but I, I don't think that that's the case. I think what Jesus has in mind here are, are, by prophets are those carrying out the proclamation of the gospel, those proclaiming the gospel to other people. And then what's the prophet's reward? What is the prophet's reward that the person will get by receiving them? E- eternal life. What's the reward of the righteous person? We learn from the Sermon on the Mount, it's eternal life. What's the reward of the disciple? It's eternal life. So if you follow the chain that Jesus is laying out here, what Jesus is saying is by receiving the prophet or the righteous person or the disciple, you're united to him because you receive his reward, the same reward he receives, which is eternal life. And by being united with him, you're united with the head who is Christ. And by being united with the head who is Christ, who are you united with? God. You see the chain that he's laying out? By joining with his confession, by believing his confession, by joining with his confession, you are professing faith in the same thing that he's professing faith in. You receive him warmly into your home with hospitality. You receive his his message of proclamation of the gospel and you are joined with him in that confession of faith. And by being joined with him in that confession, you're being joined with Christ who is the head, ultimately with God. But the reverse is true as well. If we treat even our brothers and sisters poorly, we're rejecting Christ and ultimately rejecting God. That's really heavy. If you really think about that for just a second, that's incredibly heavy. That puts a weight on us of how we treat one another around us. There's a scene of final judgment. It's depicted toward the end of the book of Matthew in Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus is standing there on the throne and he depicts all of the people gathered around him. And he separates sheep from goats. It's a very familiar scene. Probably remember um, this scene as you've read it probably a, a hundred times. And he separates them, sheep from goats. And he says to the sheep, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink and so on. And of course they respond to him, when? I don't ever remember seeing you and giving you a cup of water. When did we do that? He says, whenever you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it also to me. But then it's the exact opposite for those on his left those that are going to hell. He says, when you didn't do it to the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do it to me. You see what Jesus is doing here. Here's Jesus on the day of judgment and he's casting in his lot with every single one of his disciples. With all of that group on his right Even to the guy who spent until his last day serving in the backgrounds of the church faithfully the whole time, no one may have noticed or given him a pat on the back. Even with that guy. As evidence that his judgment is true. Because that's the question, right? When, When did that happen? When did we not see you and not give you a drink? And as evidence that his separation is true and just, He tells them, the reception that you've given to the least of these my brothers you've given to me. In other words, when it comes to hospitality, a Christian is one who welcomes all with the same level of hospitality that he would extend to Jesus himself. So in other words, Jesus isn't the kind of boss that you can work harder around just to impress him. He throws in his lot with his disciples. The way you treat them is the way you treat me. That he's present through his disciples, and the consequences are eternal. Now, when it comes to scenes like this, sometimes they puzzle us a little bit because it kind of looks like that people are going to heaven, both in that scene in Matthew 25 and then here at the end of this, that people are going to heaven or hell based on how they treat other Christians and not based on their faith in Christ. And so it may lead some to think or to ask the question, well, is this just another form of works righteousness? Can I just treat a Christian well, regardless of how I receive Jesus himself and just by being nice to Christians, maybe go to heaven? That's not the kind of reception that Jesus has in mind here. It's not merely kindness. It's not merely receiving them into your home. It's not merely giving them some water or maybe even a meal. But he says on every line in our passage this morning, he says on every line, because he is a prophet, because he is a righteous person, because he is a disciple. So the idea is not that you're merely kind, but that you're receiving the testimony of the one preaching the word. It's the same that we saw in verse 14, that you re- they receive you or listen to your words. The kind of reception that Jesus is looking for and the kind of reception that matters, the kind of reception that secures the blessings of eternal life and eternal reward is belief in the testimony that's being brought to you by the person bringing it. Whether they're proclaiming it out of their mouth or simply representing it by who they are, by being His disciple. The way you receive this word is by belief in their proclamation and demonstrating your belief is from God, is your willingness to accept them. So in other words, it's like you saying, I believe your word. I believe your testimony is true, Christian. And do you know What the evidence is that I believe your word, it's because of the way I treat the one bringing it. It's because of the hospitality that I extend to you. Make no mistake about it. There's no such thing as receiving the prophet, the righteous person or the disciple. There's no such thing as receiving them but rejecting their testimony. There's no such thing. The bedrock foundation of the church is the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that it is only through belief in his atoning work on the cross that I might have forgiveness from God and acceptance in God's kingdom. For there is no other name under heaven by which we would be saved except through Christ. There are several ways in which I think this applies specifically to us as individual Christians, but also as, uh, for us as a church. And I'm going to go through them rather quickly. They're going to appear on the screen be- behind me. The first thing that I think we should understand is that we should care for one another's soul. That we should care for one another's soul. In other words, membership in the church actually matters. When someone comes forward to say that they want to join our church, or they're basically proclaiming to you and to me that they are Christians. And because they're proclaiming that, the kind of care that we have for their soul is to watch their back and, and to keep them from running headlong into sin. So we should care for one another. That means that the person sitting next to you on the pew is important. They're really important. Their soul is important. And your duty is to them and theirs to you. Second, we should be hospitable to all people, especially those of the household of faith. What does that mean? That means when people walk in our building, when people come into our assembly, we should greet them warmly, even go out of our way to greet them. The visitor's hand should be raw by the number of hands that they've shaken on their, on their way out the door. They should be greeted warmly as Christians, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That also means we should treat one another with hospitality even those that we know quite well. I think a good exercise when you want to see the metal of a church, go to their business meetings. How do they treat one another there when money is on the line? How do they treat one another there when decisions have big, wide-ranging consequences? What sorts of things do they say to one another Are they encouraging and are they loving there in the business meeting? That's the kitchen of the church, so to speak. If the kitchen's dirty, the food's dirty as well. Third, gossip and slander toward others has no place in our mouths. Gossip and slander toward others has no place in our mouths. If this is really true, if the way we treat other believers, other Christians, other people in our assembly is the way we actually treat Jesus, then where is there room to tear someone down behind their back? Where is there room to gossip and slander about someone? And you notice in this passage, there's no qualifications here. There's no, well, I really, I know that person. When I was a kid, he bullied me on the playground. I know what kind of a lot that guy is. I remember that one time he said this or said that. There's no qualifications there. You treating them, if especially if they're of the household of faith, is the way you treat Christ himself. And if they sinned against you, go to him and tell him his fault. Fourth, you should find a way to serve the body. You should find a way to serve the body. Now, if you, you it's, it's, are right, as just a free individual, to come in here, to sit on the pew, to even join our church, and to just sit there. You can do that, I suppose, but you're hurting yourself. It's your reward that you're hurting when you choose not to serve someone else. And that doesn't mean that you get to sit there in the pew and just wait for somebody to come along and say, hey, I think you would really be good at this particular thing. Not all the time is somebody going to do that. It's your objective to come into a church, to join that church in membership, and then to go forward and find a place where you can serve other people selflessly. It should obviously fit with the things that that God has given to you. So in other words, if he's given you arthritis in your back and your knees and your hips, you're probably not the one that's going to be moving the pianos. That's probably not where your form of service is going to be. But it should be a place where you can serve. As an example, the children's ministry and the people that serve in the children's ministry, they are literally giving back to people that are never going to thank them. Maybe there is a kid out there who has turned to his Sunday school teacher and has said, thank you for serving the Lord by teaching me the gospel. Maybe there's a kid that's done that, and if you've received that as a Sunday school teacher, you are a unicorn in this world, okay? Not many people have what you have, but you have been encouraged, and that's good. But you're literally giving back and serving someone else. Fifth, there's no such thing as loving Jesus and hating his body. There is no such thing as loving Jesus and hating his body. We hear this from time to time. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I really don't go to church because, well, I don't like dealing with a lot of hypocrites up there, which is the height of hypocrisy, not realizing your own hypocrisy. But if you're the kind of person who says I'm a Christian, but I rarely go to church, I I want to break this to you as gently as I can. You're in sin. That's sin that you're diving into, that you're a part of. You're in sin. And we, as his body, if we know people like that who are members of our church, but they don't come, that's our objective, to go to them and remind them that what you're doing is sinful. I'm caring for your soul in this way. Because remember, that's another thing that we should be doing is letting them know their fault. Sixth, Jesus physically cares for us through his disciples. Jesus physically cares for us through his disciples. We don't often think about it this way, but when we go through trying and hard times and difficult times, and you have those Christians that come around you and wrap their arms around you and give you a hug, that pray for you, that give you flowers, that call you on the phone, that whatever, when you have those Christians that come around you, that is literally Christ reaching down to you and caring for you. Can you imagine a Christian going through a tough time and dying and go to heaven, stand before Christ and say, Lord, I've lost everyone in my family. Where were you? What happened to you? I didn't see you anywhere. Can you imagine his response? If this text is true, then his response is very simple. Who do you think that was that gave you a hug? Who do you think that was that prayed for you? Who do you think that was that cared for you? Who do you think that was that loved you? That was me. So, to receive the love and affection from our brothers and sisters around us, the encouragement from our brothers and sisters, and sometimes the rebuke from our brothers and sisters around us, is to receive it from Christ Himself. Last, our concern should be for eternal rather than temporal rewards. Our concern should be for eternal rather than temporal rewards. Remember, this is Jesus' consolation to a group of apostles that are about to go out and evangelize the lost and are going to face persecution. This is his consolation to them. Be encouraged. As these apostles stare down the barrel of persecution, he's telling them, it gets really good in the end. It gets really good in the end. And you need to put stock and trust in the fact that the rewards that wait for you are great. So what does that mean to us? Go out and evangelize. In the face of persecution, go out and evangelize. If people ostracize you, go out and evangelize. Not only will your evangelism receive reward, so will hospitality. And there are people who desire the word that you're bringing, and they will receive you warmly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of your text, what it tells us, what it communicates to us, and how it convicts us. Lord, if it's me, it's empty words. There's nothing that I bring to the table. But if this is from you, it has the power to change our hearts. The ways that we respond to one another, ways that we respond to people that are outside of this body, the ways that we respond to other Christians around us. Lord, allow us to make amends where there have been walls that have been built up between us and other people. Allow us to tear that down and rebuild those relationships on a better foundation, if that be the case. And allow us to confront our sin and own up to it and change our behavior. Allow us to rejoice in the fact that you are our head, you are with us, you are united to us, and you go before us, Your word promises us, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's for us. That's an encouragement to us. Let us take it that way. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.